Hello, welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm Andy Cleff, and following up on a solo podcast experiment that Troy did the other week, I'm going to give it a go. Topic that I want to focus on today, the big idea is doing no better. I have a question for you. You feel that your team, your system, the org that you're in is capable of much higher performance than you're currently experiencing? Could the solution be as simple as learning to do no better? Stick with me. We'll find out. Grab some paper and pencil, some sticky notes, maybe a Sharpie, whatever you like, and play along with me. Do some data gathering in your system. How much of a problem do you have with time management? Some of these ideas come out of Dominica de Grandis's wonderful book, Making Work Visible. And I'll provide a link in the show notes. Grab your pen and stickies. If you don't have them, hit pause, go get them. Write five stickies. First one, too much work in progress. That's the first thief of time. Second, unplanned work. Third, conflicting priorities. Number four, neglected work. And finally, five external dependencies. So let me recap them for you. The five thieves of time that come out of making work visible, too much work in progress, unplanned work, conflicting priorities, neglected work, and external dependencies. Stack rank these. And if you don't really have a clear picture, leave these out for the next week or two and put a hash mark anytime you experience one of these thieves. Done this with groups and pretty much consistently see the same thing. Uh, few people have zeros for any of these. Many people have too much work in progress, unplanned work, conflicting priorities. All these point to a common issue, time that non-renewable resource. While a team, if you're in software, can roll back a code push that didn't go well, refactor a feature that didn't quite hit the mark, they're all hypothesis anyway. The one thing none of us can recover is lost time. Those bandits, they steal our team's joy as well as our time. So I give you a challenge. If you could make a 1% improvement every day in reducing the impact any one of those thieves have, just 1% per day, every day of the year, think of the compound interest. We're not talking 2x. We're not talking 10x. We're talking 37x improvement. Once you've got a clear picture of these thieves of time, think about them. How do we let them into our system? These bandits, what decisions are we making that allow them to persist? There's a great book by Greg McEwen uh, called Essentialism. And I wanted to share with you a, a quote from it that I find helps me unpack the answer to why do we allow these bandits to exist? Quote, when people ask us to do something, we can confuse the request with our relationship with them. Sometimes the two seem so interconnected 
we forget that denying the request is not the same as denying the person. Only once we separate the decision from the relationship can we make a clear decision and then separately find both the courage and the compassion to communicate it. I'll put a link to Greg's book in the show notes. Grab your pad of paper now, or stickies if you like to work in stickies, and take a few minutes and think about the reasons you might say yes, even though you really want to say no. Hit pause. I'll be here when you get back. I'm curious what patterns emerged from your, your brainstorming. Why do you, an otherwise intelligent person, make the choices that you do in your personal or professional life? I bet what happens just before you want to say no at work, there's a fear. There's a concern. Patterns that I've seen over time running that question past teams, even at retros, or running this as a workshop. People are afraid of missing out on an opportunity. What if something's discussed and... They're afraid of rocking the boat, burning bridges, damaging that relationship, disappointing someone that we like or respect. It's also awkward and uh, ripe with conflict potential. So we fall back to this idea of normative conformity. Go along to get along. Think about what you're giving up when you say yes to someone. And when you think about the trade-off, the more you think about it, it might get easier to say no. If you say yes to the right things and no to everything else, really, I encourage you. There's a wonderful quote from Carrie Fisher. If you're scared, she says, stay afraid, but do it anyway. What's important is action. You don't have to wait to be confident. Just do it. And eventually, the confidence will follow. If you're in your comfort zone, find that stretch zone. Find the courage to say no. Really, it's okay. It leads to focus and flow. There's a wonderful story in, in one of the biographies of Steve Jobs, where he, <laughs> where I, I think Johnny Ives is interviewed and he talks about every time he bumped into Steve, Steve would ask him, Johnny, what did you say no to today? It got to a point that Johnny just kept a rolling list, so he wasn't taken by surprise. There's a Jobs quote that when you think about focusing, you think focusing is saying yes. And Jobs goes on and says, no, focusing is about saying no. And he's as proud of the many things we haven't done as the things they have done at Apple. Innovation, he said, was about saying no to a thousand things. What do we mean by innovation? These new ideas, these creative thoughts, these novel imaginations that provide solutions for new requirements or even unarticulated needs or unknown market needs or known market needs. You know the expression, when everything is important, nothing is. So look at your situation. Your, your business partners and have a conversation. What is most important? Is it predictability, innovation, continuous improvement? 
you've got a half a dozen more out of a path to agility that you can think about. Customer satisfaction, quality, speed, market responsiveness, productivity, employee engagement. Have a conversation with your key stakeholders. Put these nine out on a table. Stack rank them and talk about it. These are the key business outcomes you're driving towards. Each of them have measurable indicators if you're headed in the right direction. Some are leading, some are lagging. Do you have in place instrumentation to give you feedback loops in your journey? Qualitative, quantitative, anything's possible. Now, it's interesting. The word priority came into the English language in the 1400s. And for about 500 years, it was singular. It meant the very first or the prior thing. And it stayed singular until 1900, the start of the Industrial Revolution. Only then did it start to pluralize. And then we started talking about priorities. Maybe we need to go back to the 1400s, right? I think, I think your organization, I think your system, your team, I think you are capable of much higher performance than you're currently experiencing. I think if you're feeling burnout and you think that there's high performance to be unlocked, as our friend Brandy Olson says, you're not experiencing real flow. We talked to her on this podcast. She has a wonderful book. I'll provide links to that. But the key, I think, to real flow is minimizing your work in progress. Probably that first bandit has more hash marks than any other. Now, you don't have to change. You can stay the same. But think about the status quo. Is it really that much fun? I love Edwards Deming. He's got a great quote. You've heard it before. It's not necessary to change. Survival is not mandatory. How long can you keep doing what you're doing? How long can your teams, where <laughs> the focus might be on this past idea that emerged in the 1900s, resources must be utilized. We're living in the past. How many times have you heard the word referring to creative knowledge workers as resources, right? They aren't. Think through Little's Law. Think through any cue you have. The lead time is the work in progress divided by throughput. How can you make people happy? Simply focus on that first thief. Limit your whip. There's so many wonderful videos out there. If, if you need to share with somebody, uh, we'll put links. You've got Nieberg's the, the Resource Utilization Trap. You've got his wonderful... Uh, sticky, smiley note talking about one-piece flow. There's also a wonderful TEDx about the efficiency paradox. And if you haven't watched any of these three short videos, look for the links in the show notes. Share them with your team. Share them with your leadership. Share them with your stakeholders. I see aha moments going off. They're like, oh, so that's why things take so long. There's other games that if you're a coach or a facilitator, you've used the penny flip game that talks about batch size and the importance of making it smaller. And there's other games that talk about context switching and the penalty there. 
Jerry Weinberg did a study. I, I forget the dates, but it's so easy to demonstrate with any task switching experiment, counting cards in a deck. Uh, my colleague, Jenny Tarwater, shout out Jenny, uh, has a wonderful thing that we use oftentimes. And every time we have the same output, switching between two simple tasks, such as writing numbers and letters back and forth, we see a 20% drop in throughput. Just two simple tasks. Go to three, you see 40. Go to four, 60. Go to five context switches, 80%. You spend more time losing than you do producing in context switching. High work in progress delays ROI, delays joy. You all know this, but we do it anyway. So what's the solution? I come back to, it's simple. Borrowing from a favorite author, Annie Lamont. No, it's a complete sentence. There's a freedom in setting boundaries. Sometimes the right response to a request is no. Maybe yes and no are the wrong words or the wrong responses, particularly if you're trying to initiate a conversation. I want to talk a bit, just briefly, about one of my least favorite activities. Maybe it's, it's yours as well. Meetings, bloody meetings. What if you eliminated meaningless or unproductive meetings? Replace them with space to think to work on the most important thing. I would encourage you, no, challenge you, open up your calendar. What percentage of your total working time is spent in meetings? So let me define what a meeting is. It's when two or more people get together for the purpose of achieving a shared goal. Sometimes they're face-to-face, -face, virtual, etc. An, an act or a process of coming together seminars, conferences, whatever. What percentage of your time is spent in meetings? Good, better, and different, total. What percentage of your teammates' times is spent in meetings? We could probably do a whole show. In fact, I'll, I'll cue something up. Are these good meetings or are these bad meetings? There's a simple formula, power. Is there a clear purpose? Is there a clear outcome? Is there a clear with them, what's in it for me? Do we have expectations, working agreements, start time, end time, preparation? The R is roles. Will everyone who needs to be there actually be there? Who's facilitating? Who's taking notes? Who's talking on which topic? If you find yourself in a great meeting, congratulations. But if you find yourself in one that's not, do you provide feedback gracefully? Do you even put time at the end of the meeting to have feedback? How is this meeting for all y'all? If you're working in or supporting a scrum team, how many meetings are outside the core events? Now, I'm not talking about team-driven meetings of collaboration, but outside, outside the, the team sync, the iteration review, the sprint planning, the sprint retrospective or backlog refinement. There's a, there's a wonderful video. And again, I'll put a link, Ripley's. There's a meeting for that. So instead of saying yes to yet another meeting, can we use an existing event? 
There's another great idea around meetings and times that comes out of David Marquet. Leadership is language. Red time, blue time. But unfortunately, many of us are in purple time. Red time's about doing, reducing variability, completing work. Blue time's about thinking, exploring, learning, improving. Both are needed. But you need to know, which one are we doing today? Is this red time? Is this blue time? Interruptions in our day stink. We talk about context switching. So how do you minimize that? Do you block time on your calendar? Do you turn on DND? I love using Pomodoros. Turn off my distractions. Set up auto replies. Say no to temptation, distraction. Say yes to focus and flow. There's more. There's a wonderful quote from Jessica Song. This is out there for you, scrum masters, coaches, product owners, even team members. If you do exactly what you're told, you're not doing your job. If, if you're in a command and control situation, you're being told what to do. How do you say no without saying no? In some of our training, we provide a, a I don't want to say a script, but a starting point, a framework for providing a response to that. You're asking me or the team to do X. And I think the outcome you're looking for is Y. We can do Z to meet the same outcome with better fill in the blank, quality, productivity, compliance, speed, because of fill in the blank. How do you feel about that different approach? There are so many situations where this comes in handy. Give it a test drive. You're asking me to do what? Well, I think the outcome you're looking for is this. We can do it with better results. What do you think? I want to talk about innovation, which relies on the slack time. I want to start out with a bit of a story, and you may have heard this one along the way. There's a number of different variations. There are two lumberjacks in a wood felling trees. One was going from trunk to trunk nonstop, working up quite a sweat. The other one would cut a tree or two down, take a break, have some water. And this went on through lunchtime. Now, the first decided to work through lunch, noticing that their pile was a bit smaller than their co-workers. The other one ate lunch. After lunch, took a nap and then resumed working. Late in the afternoon, when the sun's about ready to go down, the first couldn't take it any longer, especially when they noticed they had about half as many trees as their lazy partner. I don't get it, they exclaimed. I'm working my butt off here and you, you're taking freaking breaks every other tree. And you even took a nap at lunchtime. And yet, they pointed to the trees. The other lumberjack laughed. But you failed to notice that every time I took a break, I sharpened my ax. This is where Scrum Master's coach needed to step in. How much slack time exists? Just say no to going from tree to tree. Look at the team's sprints if you're doing scrum. Is there buffer time built in? Look at your load factors. What is your average load factor? Is it 100% of the capacity? Are we back to that resource utilization fallacy? Help them. There's so many benefits of tinker time, sparked creativity, 
time to sharpen the axe, cross-team pollination, opportunities for teams to exercise that important autonomy, mastery, purpose, co-learning. There's a reduced risk of burnout. And my favorite, it makes failure with learning acceptable. There's a great book called Slack. I'll put it in the show notes if you want to read more about the benefits of tinker time. The benefits of saying no to 100% load, even 80% load. I'm going to start on the next one, saying no to false starts. How do you push back on accepting fuzzy work that gets you to, on your marks, get set, stop. Get a sticky note out. Think. Think about, in your particular context, how frequently do you start and are actually able to get to done? Never? Rarely? Sometimes? Often? Or always? If you aren't where you want to be in terms of starting and finishing, stop starting, start finishing. There's so many tools in our toolbox. I'll just mention a few. I'm not going to go into a great number of details. But at the highest level, are you using lean business cases to decide whether or not to embark on work? At the epic level, how good is it strategically, financially, non-financially? And then did you decide based on your current financial capacity? Can you say no? Not now. Or when you say yes, is it a hell yes, where you're going to go ahead and allocate the capacity to build that first MVP, that first piece to test your hypothesis? Do you have leading indicators so you know whether you should pivot or persevere? When you break that big epic down into features, do you have good feature readiness criteria? Are you using some way to calculate the the weighted shorted job first and actually working on what's most important. If you're pulling stories, do you have clear readiness criteria? If you're doing scrum and you have a sprint, do you have a sprint goal? Do you have no hidden work? Are you doing team confidence votes? All of these things from epic to feature to story to sprint, look at your definition of ready. But if it's not met, push back. Push back on fuzzy work so that you can stop starting and start finishing. Let me take it up a notch. Is your enterprise ready, ready to make a change? There's a great book that just came out, BRT Bogsness. Uh, I garbled his name. Well, it wouldn't be an Agile Uprising podcast if we didn't mess up a name. BRT, I'm sorry. We're going to try to get him on a show to talk about his book, Beyond Budgeting, A Guide to More Adaptive and Human Organizations. There's a wonderful concept in there about enterprise readiness to actually start work to finish it. It's separating this, this archaic budget process, separating targets, forecasts, and allocation of resources. We're talking about money and capacity and having the bank always open so that you can fund things that make sense. It's tied into lean business cases and flow of ideas with vision and a high-level strategy. If you separate target forecasting and resource allocations, you get to improve them independently. Talk about starting and finishing. What gets in the way? Budgets run out? There's huge power in here. So stay tuned for a future show 
where we unpack this. I talked a little bit earlier about normative conformity. One of the reasons we say yes when we want to say no. There's a great idea that David Marquet has shared. I don't know which book it was in, or maybe it wasn't even in a book. It was put a part of his uh, leadership ladder. He talks about avoiding conformity bias, avoiding groupthink, using clean, open-ended questions, not a binary, are you sure? Which forces a yes or no. And honestly, is that the right question? Depending on who's in the room, who goes first, you get groupthink, you get conformity bias. If the hippo said yes, I better say yes too. Marquet's method is pretty straightforward. To ask questions, challenge assumptions, to break that conformity bias. Avoiding binary choices instead of saying, are you sure? Ask, how strongly do you feel? How strongly do you feel that we should include this feature? That we should delay the release? What's the probability that this assumption will come true? He has a wonderful deck of probability cards that we use. Similar to, to planning poker, everybody gets, gets a deck of cards. It's not modified Fibonacci's, but it's 1, 5, 20, 50, 80, 95. And you ask a question or you pose a question, the issue, a proposal. And then you formulate questions about it that can be answered with, how sure are you about and then to avoid anchoring bias, everybody pulls a card and plays it at the same time. How sure are you about? And the, the interesting part, just like in planning poker, it's in the outliers. I'm a 20, you're an 80. What do we see differently? It's a great way to avoid the simple yes, no dilemma and avoid groupthink. I'll put a link to leadership nudge about avoiding groupthink, avoiding binary questions. Make it a probability discussion. That's a lot. If your brains aren't full, uh, stick around. If you need a break, hit pause, come back later, because I've got more ways to say no. I came across the scientific guide to saying no, how to avoid temptation and distraction. It's really a wonderful study, and I'll put a link into the show notes. There's this concept that came out of it that was really great. The authors were exploring the, the power of the words we use and the feedback loops that our brains create that impact our future behaviors. And they explored a simple word change. I can't versus I don't. So think about it. Pick, pick any question, any offer. Oh, wait, write it down. Shall I have another cookie? Shall we accept that fuzzy story? Now ponder the two responses. We can't have another cookie. We can't take that story. Or we can't say no. It's not so much a choice, it's a restriction, being imposed, undermining agency. We can't say no to that meeting. Now let's flip it around. We don't. It's an empowering way to say no. It expresses a choice and an affirmation of determination and control. 
Sorry, we don't accept meeting invites that aren't part of our core ceremonies. We don't accept stories that don't meet our definition of ready. We don't start sprints that don't meet our team's definition of ready. The words we use create a wonderful feedback loop in our brains. Think about it. And again, I'll put a link to this study, The Scientific Guide to Saying No. Someone offers you a cookie, want to pick your brain. Saying no could be a lot easier than you think. A couple of ideas on how you can explore your personal palette of no. A couple of wonderful responses are, I'm flattered that you thought of me, but I don't have the bandwidth. I'd very much like to help with this, but I'm at my whip limits. There's a no, not me. And a how about a, a not now? Sounds interesting. I'll think about it. I'll get back to you towards end of the day, end of the month, end of the week. You don't have to decide right then and there. Sometimes that rightly timed pause, as Mark Twain says, is the most effective thing. Something I'm working on. Ask any of my coworkers, practicing the art of pause and ponder before responding. Instead of being controlled by the threat of an awkward silence, count to three. Or if you're a bit bolder, simply wait for the other person to fill in the void. If you're pushed for a reply, let me check my calendar, I'll get back to you. Or if you need an answer right now, I have to say no. But if you can wait, I'll give it some more thought. You can be a nose-air without becoming a naysayer. Practice the art of finding something positive. Reframe to spot a glimmer of hope. Maybe it's as simple as the improv, yes and, what should I deprioritize to take that into my queue? There's another great idea that comes out of Marquet's work, embracing dissent. And if, if you're in a place where dissent isn't accepted readily, maybe you ritualize it, ritual dissent. There's a, a pack of cards. I wish they go digital, David. Dissent cards, black and red cards, where uh, there's a limited number of black, which are, okay, we encourage, let's, let's pursue it in a positive way. But there are red cards, stop cards uh, with questions, and you can pull them that force a discussion to embrace dissent. No often is taken as dissent. So embrace it, explore it, use it to work towards focus flow. So I know that's a lot of ideas. They're all captured in one form or another with links in the show notes. But what are you gonna do with those ideas? How are you going to turn them into something that you can practice? Grab a piece of paper. Come up with three to six behaviorally based experiments that are specific, observable, repeatable. And write down, what is it you're going to try? Where are you going to try it? When are you going to try it? And if you're going to do it with someone else, who is that person? Come up with at least one experiment that you can do tomorrow, next week, next month, over the next quarter. Make a resolution 
to say yes to change. That status quo, if it's not where you want it to be, see if you can fix it. With any change of habits, behaviors, you're going to be creating a new discipline. And these changes, sometimes they stick, sometimes they don't. Say yes to grace. Say no to perfection. Just get started. Be brave. Be brave. And someone who bravely dares must sometimes risk a fall. Here's some things that I'm working on for change. Step one, <laughs> I catch myself after the fact. Shit, did it again. Yep. Step two, catch myself in the act. I am in the process of. Step three, which I hope to get to someday, think about it before I act. Oh, and uh, that rainbow with unicorns at the end. Step four, say and act without even thinking about it. It's become muscle memory. But this is a loop through all of these steps. One, two, three, four, rinse and repeat. Damn it, did it again. Well, it's not about perfection. It's about practice. But imagine, imagine that 1% improvement every day. Find the courage, dare to choose. Eliminate that flood of competing priorities. Limit the work in progress. Reduce your batch size. Reduce organizational multitasking. You'll improve the flow of value. You'll focus on meaningful business outcomes. All through a single two-letter word. And to quote Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 2, Line 92. No. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sticking through here with me. Um, if you like this show, if you hated this show, open to feedback. Add some comments or jump on our Discord server and join the conversation. Check out the show notes for full links. Again, thanks for listening. This is the Agile Uprising Podcast, signing out.